Welcome to the Power of Property podcast. I am your host, Ellie Mackay, a property investor and developer. And this podcast is for anyone who shares my passion for property. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just getting started, I want to take you to the next level. I'm going to be bringing some real chat with some of the UK's leading property entrepreneurs. We'll be sharing wisdom and industry insights without any of the BS. Property's absolutely transformed my life and I know it has the potential to change yours too. Enjoy. Everybody, this week I am joined by no other than the fabulous Mark Stokes. Now, for anyone who doesn't know Mark, he's an author, he's a mentor, he's a business investor, he's a property developer with over 25 years' experience working on a hundred million plus worth of land and new build development, large scale commercial to residential. And he's nationally recognized as one of the top SAS advisors. And I think the most impressive part of that rather extensive CV is he's also a father of four. So welcome to the show, Mark. Oh, thank you very much, Ellie. Really appreciate. And uh, well, you're on such a great mission. So uh, really great we connected and looking forward to this. Oh, I'm really excited. I feel like I've got a proper grown up on the show today. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll try not to let you down. Okay, so so let's take it back a few notches then, Mark, because prior to the work that you're doing now, which we're going to go a bit deeper into, you actually had 20 plus years as a non-exec director, troubleshooter at a very high level. Um, can you tell the listeners a little bit about your own backstory? Yeah, yes, I was born and bred in Lincolnshire and uh, climbed the wall at 18 to go to university and was never let back in, really. Um, I went and did a degree in construction. At, for those of you with uh, dim and distant memories, a polytechnic back in those days, back in 1988. And um, I was fortunate to come out, having done my degree, into a world that was changing. And I think embracing change, um, and I guess change has been my constant for the last 30 years. And the, the particular change back in 1992 for me was the world was changing from a telecoms perspective. The world was changing from the old copper networks to fiber. Data centers were starting to move. A lot of US money coming across. And I was the first employee in a new organization set up by a US company um, to spearhead infrastructure rollout in the UK, then in across EMEA, and then into Asia Pacific. So I probably had about 50 or 60 roles over the next uh, 20, 25 years, or 26 years, actually, but only two employers um, during that time. So I was blessed with uh, a huge amount of opportunity. Um, and I guess that's because I I learned never to say no in corporate life. Um yeah, there was, uh, if you remember the film, the Clint Eastwood film, Dirty Harry, mm-hmm. why do they call you Dirty Harry? Any dirty job, Harry gets it. Well, any, uh, I was the cleanup uh, guy, the troubleshooter in corporate life. You know, if there was ever any issues, a project that was over budget, going, you know, over program, delayed, you know, they would call for me and I would go in, parachute in and, and try and uh, resolve the issue. So would you be director of multiple companies at the same time? How did it work? Yeah, I mean, it varied over time uh, as to make the demands of, of the corporate. Um, I've, uh, I remember sitting in the 12th, 12th floor of a, an Auckland lawyer's office signing the legal documents to become a director in New Zealand whilst watching the America's Cup back in uh the year 2000, actually. Um, so I've been a director in multiple countries around the world. Um, probably the most amount of directorships I've had in corporate life is uh, probably seven or eight. I certainly resigned from seven companies in 2015. Um, so I've been a non-exec director, a director uh, in name, a director at a company's house, a chairman, but it's always been not through ego. It's just been what has been required to serve certain needs. Sometimes the bank might insist on me as a corporate representative being on the board um, in some quite complex and intricate um, discussions. Um, and obviously, since uh, since leading corporate life, setting up my own group of companies, 
uh, I'm on the board of many different organizations there as well. But it's not really the directorships that I focus on now. It's the shareholding structures and how they work with that multi-generational legacy that uh, that I'm working um, and structuring. So a lot of traveling, a lot of time away from your family. Did that factor into your decision to make the transition in 2015? Yeah, ma massively, massively. Um, I, I'd lived out of a suitcase for many, many years. I've worked in 33 countries, four continents, and that, that takes its toll. Um, I feel absolutely privileged to experience all the highs and all the lows, you know, my glass is half full. I'll draw a positive out of any situation, any altercation, any scenario. Um, but there comes a point in your life where it's not about yourself. It's about others. And, um, I mean, you know yourself, uh, a, a businesswoman and a, and a mum, it's about creating you know, that that dynamism in your life that, that brings your passion for your family and your passion for what you love. And I, I actually love business, always mm -hmm. have done, probably more so than I, I love property. Um, but the, it, it's the time the children want uh, at the at the younger ages. And I'm, I'm not ashamed to admit that I got that balance wrong, um, certainly with my two boys. My, my children are between 11 and 21 at the moment. Um, I got that that, that balance wrong in, in corporate life. I did the best I could. You know, when you when you don't go to the men's hundred meter semi final at the twenty twelve um, you know London Olympics because you had a very specific board meeting that you needed to attend, and I couldn't even tell you what that board meeting was now. But I let my family down and didn't go to that because of you know, that particular scenario, you know, we had a Houston, we've got a problem moment at corporate life. And that was the, some of the expensive decisions that uh, I chose to make. So yeah, it came to a decision where I need to put my, my family first. And I sat down with my wife and we agreed um, uh, an exit plan. And that to me, Ellie was, that was the point of, of freedom. Mm -hmm. That freedom, not not financial freedom or whatever jargon we want to put on that, but it was the point where that freedom of choice, and I was triggering that freedom of choice. I'd not told anybody, but from that point on, the company were funding my exit. And don't get me wrong, I, I was working 70, 80, 90 hours a week, and I probably continued to put in those amount of, of hours. But that mindset, that mental shift, I was now starting to design my parachute for when I, you know, leapt out the corporate jet. Um, so three months later, I sat down with the chief exec, negotiated my exit. She asked me to complete some mergers and acquisitions, which I, I ran as well. Um, and when you're dealing with mergers and corporate transformations, generally that's going to come at the expense of lots of jobs. Mm -hmm. So I, I again, I was doing the doing the role that nobody else wanted to do in terms of, you know, redundancies and that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, I was pretty beat up by the time I'd finished that that nine or ten month transition out of corporate life. But, you know, what a what a transformation that had, had started, you know, and uh, I was massively enthusiastic to then take on, you know, that that real legacy and custodianship of, of doing something for, for my family on my own terms. Before we go into to what sort of came afterwards, Mark, when you say there you're working up to 90 hours a week in a very high-pressured, high-performance environment where you're responsible for, for literally hiring and firing people at quite a grand scale, what kind of toll did that take on not just your mental health but also your physical health? I'm just thinking from a logistical point of view there. Were you able to were you able to exercise? Were you able to look at all those other things that you and I both sort of um, associate with success, the, the well-being, not just the money in the bank? Yeah. Um, it wore a very heavy toll on me mindset-wise. Uh, mentally, I, I feel I'm, I'm very strong. Um, physically, that I'd always recognised there was a gap physically. Um, I mean, to the point where I'd only, only been out of university. I was in my mid-20s. Um, probably about two or three years, I would say. Yeah, I was 24, 25, 
um, and I was missing that that physical bit. And um, I, I joined the Territorial Army, um, and I also um, decided to become a, a freefall skydiver as well. Oh wow! So just uh, yeah, I used to. My, my passion was skydiving out of helicopters in the mid nineties. That's what, that's what I used to. That is not a normal hobby, could I just see? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I I, I, I like to, uh, yeah, full immersion. I think would be how you might describe some of my my pursuits in the past. <laughs> um, likewise with uh, going to the top of mountains and the bottom of the oceans. You know, I, I've I've really enjoyed that. Um, and and again in the. Probably in about 2008, 2009, I was coming up to 40, and uh, I'd probably come off my uh, off my fighting weight a little bit, and I, I decided I need to do something about that. So, in true Mark fashion, set myself some pretty lofty targets, um, and I decided to go into triathlon. Well, why do Olympic distance when you can do an Ironman? So I did a couple of Ironmans in pretty quick succession within about three weeks, um, and that took me to a certain level of training. But I soon realized um, all the preparation of a bike, well, it's all very well and good, but um, I actually preferred getting my trainers on and getting off tarmac and going to run out in the fields and in, into nature. So that's set a passion which, uh, which I've always loved, um, but for the last 10 years of ultramarathon running, uh, trail running, so I competed in the, the Marathon de Saab uh, across the Sahara and uh, a number of 100-mile, 24-hour races. And it's, Wow. It's been... Can I just say, I've just got a next level of respect for you. The Marathon de Saab and all these ultra races, you're like, you're just, you're just flippantly saying, oh, yeah, tops of mountains, bottom of the ocean, you know, like jumping out of helicopters. This is insane. Yeah, look, I think... Um, I think what it what it shows you, and I, I'm I'm nothing special. Um, I have to work, and uh, you know, um, an admission. I know this is just between. We'll stay just between you and I, Ellie. My discipline at nutrition is absolutely shocking. So, in some respects, I absolutely need to do ultra marathon running just to kind of keep the uh, keep the timber off. But um, yeah, what it what it showed me when you're when you're doing a, a race. I mean. My largest, my longest race in the UK, in fact, my longest 24 hour period, the Marathon de Saab is over five days and amazing 52 degree temperatures and quite incredible. But men, the attrition just wears you down over five days and your feet are falling apart and all kinds of things. But in the UK, I did a, a race 107 miles uh, over 24 hours cross country. And when you what it cemented in my own mind was when you put the power of your mind and the power of your body together and challenge traditions you know when you've run for 16 hours non-stop just to stop for a fill your water bottle up your whole body just wants to crawl up under a hedge and go to sleep you know what is it that drives you to that next level and keeps you going for another minute a day yeah you know, uh, you know an extra period of time and and you actually incrementally set your objectives lower and lower you start off thinking i, I want to run 100 miles and after 10 10 hours of running you're thinking well i want to just get through the next kilometer and you know by the time you've run you know 20 hours you just want to get to the next hedge line or next telegraph pole um and 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 i think in life sometimes you have to yes expand your your vision, expand your goals. But there is a time and a place where you need to dial in and focus just yeah. on that for a very finite period of time um, on those uh, on those immediate challenges. So uh, it gave me a different perspective here. And when you're running in the Welsh mountains or Dartmoor in the middle of winter, carrying your own water and everything, um, you've got to You've got to know the warning signs as well. You know, heat stroke, hypothermia, dehydration. By the time you've got them, you're on your way to being taken out. So you've got to be very aware and in the moment. And uh, over my corporate life, being in the moment, particularly being present in the moment with my kids, on a Sunday when all I'm really thinking about is 
preparing for the board meeting on a Monday morning. So I've I've lived at both ends of the spectrum here and competed with uh, you know those those mindful challenges. Um, and it's created some it's quite interesting moments in my life, to be honest. Some of which I'm proud of, and some less proud of. Wow, wow! And I've got to ask, how did that conversation go down with your wife when you missed the final of the hundred meters for the 2012 Olympics? Don't go there. <laughs> it's still a bit raw. <laughs> no, and look how how unfair was that, you know? And uh, yeah, it's just. Just not good, not not something I'm I'm proud of. Um, but uh, she knew how committed I was. But uh, although that was 2012, we sat down in 2014, Sharon and I, to make those decisions um, on my future. Um, but it was it was still into mid 2014 when I three months after that when I sat down with my chief exec. Explained the way my world was going, and she explained the way the business world was going in a, in her eyes, and asked me to stay for that extra nine months. So, you know, it was May two thousand and fifteen by the time I exited. But um, of course, that then brings another series of of changes. You know, I mm-hmm. had this great vision of this multi generational legacy and multiple companies, and and most of it has come true, and I'm I'm very proud of what. The team and and myself have, have have managed to achieve in in that relatively short space of time, but um, I think there's another lesson there. My um, my my wife and I have now been married 23 years, but just because I have the vision of being a business partner with my wife, you know, my wife's my wife's a giver, a carer. She's got four children at home, our four children, and she's looking after after them every day. Um, and it really taught me that actually I jumped to conclusions that my objectives would be my wife's objectives, and we both are, are very different. So bringing us, ourselves together, I'm working from home. She's had a home life and a working environment, you know, a timetable each day um, for, the, for the last 20 years, and then I turn up on the scene working from home saying, oh, can you just be quiet? I'm just on a call. You know, it didn't quite go down quite so well. <laughs> These are the practicalities, though, that, that perhaps people people don't necessarily think of. Um, now, we know that since 2015, you've went on to develop over £100 million worth of, of property and then some. But were you, uh, I appreciate you were on a very good salary in the corporate world, but were you building your own portfolio or accruing assets um, during that period? Or did this very much start with the next chapter? Uh, yeah, I'd um, I'd made a start um, before I left corporate life and and over the years, but not to any huge degree. So primarily, that focus, that nine month period of, of exiting corporate life, was about getting the shackles off. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit of time in terms of preparation. I could have been more prepared in hindsight, but I think it did a reasonable job. Yeah, I was I was extremely well paid for 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 what I did. Um, and was a, a very loyal corporate servant, if you like. Um, but it doesn't matter how many companies uh, you, you, you're, you're running and, and managing director of, um, you still got to answer to the board, to the shareholders, and uh, and and to the chairman. So uh, and so there was quite a quite a transition there for for me to make, and that was that was really really quite fundamental. Wow. Okay. So day one, your your first day in your new your new adventure. I'm presuming that you'll have had a bit more business acumen than I had on day one, Mark, because I remember sitting at my desk with that. You know, we got the office. My husband already had an office from his other business, but this was all new to me. I'd only ever been an employee before, and more recently on Job Seekers Allowance after I've been made redundant. So I'm there with my my new laptop and my I've got all all the gear, no idea. You know, I've got my leather binder, I've got all these gadgets sat there, and I just remember sitting there and saying to Mark, "It's like, right then, so uh, what do I do?" <laughs> and he's like, "I've only, I, I spent my entire life." kind of been told what to do although I've had autonomy in, in management positions and, and things like that you know the, the the whole concept that I was a captain of my own ship really took some some getting used to how, how was that for you on day one can you remember 
Yeah, I do. I remember it very, very vividly. And I, I think all of us, if we're if we're honest, once we've we've you know exited corporate life, and on that first day, it's like, wow, not why did I do that, but wow, this is what it's going to be. You know, how do I? Time management is really interesting because you've got to actually adjust to the business not running your life. You know, there was a metronomic, we had management meetings, so I would be going into work, I'd be heading on the red eye to Paris or Frankfurt or wherever it was um, uh, in, in my in my corporate life, board meetings to prepare for, you know, my PA would come with a big folder of things to sign. And so all of that gone away. Now, you know, I have to be autonomous. You know, I have to design my day. What is my strategy? Um, but I think one one key thing here, and I, I work with a lot of people who want to leave corporate life in many ways. Um, and I've, I've mentored people for about 23 years. So it's something I, I really enjoy. A lot of people will throw the baby out with the bathwater. They will take those skills. They want to be as far away from corporate life as they possibly could be. They've made that move, but just pause, take a step back, reach back into that corporate environment, reach back into your career and recognize the huge amount of skills that you've curated and nurtured over the years. And how can you draw that? How can you repurpose those skills? As a developer, we repurpose existing infrastructure um, to serve a, a future need, we'll take those existing skills and repurpose those and design those. Be proud of them. Um, not everybody agrees with your view of them. I, I remember when we, we did one of our first developments, only a matter of months um, after after leaving the job. It was a 16-apartment commercial to residential conversion and the 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 bank finance, the development finance, asked asked uh, me and my, my fellow directors for for the CV of what we'd achieved, and I could tell you about a billion US dollars of infrastructure around Asia Pacific, eighty million pound data centers by the dozen, you know, huge amounts. And they said that's all very well and good, Mark, but how many sixteen apartment commercial conversions have you done? Um, <laughs> So it's just <laughs> dialing it down into a different a, a, a different language for a different recipient. Um, so that was quite humbling, and it kind of brings you back down to earth. And you've got to earn your five-star McDonald badges all over again to some degree, but that really didn't take long. So for some people, that repurposing of the skill set and recognizing what their strategy is might take an hour, a day, a week, a month, uh, a year. I mean, for me, I, I kind of gave myself a day out. The day off and um, have a big boy pill and, and get on with it. So uh, dive straight. <laughs> and and I know that within your like first six months, you bought something like twenty five properties. But you realise quite quickly, and I think it's quite evident why listening to your backstory that the sm the, the smaller sort of buy to lets, the HMOs, it, it was never really your sweet spot with the experience that you're already bringing to the table. You're a lot more comfortable with the bigger numbers, the more creative developments, the land and new build, the larger scale commercial conversions that you were talking about. How long did it take you to, to really come to that realisation and transition? Um, about 30 seconds after my wife drew my attention to it, if I'm honest. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I bought a 10 storey block of flats and about 16 properties in the first six months. Um, so you know we we did some we did some great great things in six months, but most of those were going north for cash flow, if you like. And uh, yeah, Sharon just uh, said, "Like, can we just have a, a word here? You you want you left you left the job, spend more time with the family, but you seem to spend more time at the A one and the uh, the M six. Um, so um, yeah, we shall we say we revisited the uh, the reason why I left corporate life together. Um, <laughs> And that's the frankness of, that you get with so many years of marriage, I guess. You know? <laughs> uh, and she was absolutely right. Absolutely right. And, and do you know one thing, Ellie, on, on this, um, the reason why I was acquiring these properties was a real connection for my children, for my family. You know, in our SAS pension, we hold um, commercial property, quite a lot of commercial property. And I can take my children to go and have 
tea, you know, snack, coffee in one of our properties that has got a cafe in and they can connect with it that wow so this is a this is a this is our pension is it you know that's the type of questions they're asking but the properties i bought up north they never saw they never will see i've sold quite a few of them and just you know asset rotation um but they couldn't relate to it and resonance is really important and i miss that connection i went for assets and it taught me a real lesson that in the future i will only ever strategically acquire assets it's not the physical asset itself property is just a vehicle to get you to where you need to go so it had to be the strategic alignment of assets with the right tax structuring and everything but also the locale as well so that my family members loved ones can actually physically connect with it because that will help you know um really connect them and uh, and take them on their learning journey as well I love that and there's quite a lot to unpack with what you just said but you, you've mentioned SAS and this is one of the things that you are synonymous for so if you wouldn't mind just explaining to the listeners a little bit about firstly what SAS pensions are and, and also your own personal story because we mentioned the big salary from the corporate role but up until um, your sort of awakening if you want to call it that with SAS you were like probably 99% of the population that got your letter every year you pick it up you read it and hope it would do better in the following year and that was literally the extent of it so your depth of knowledge in this area is is now second to none how were you first introduced to SAS what is SAS and what, what why should we care yeah that's, I'll, I'll unpack that there's a few layers to that one Ellie um, <laughs> As I, I mentioned changes, you know, it's a constant in my life. I've always been thrown into adverse situations, challenges, and I, I love that. So it won't surprise you that challenging tradition was incredibly important to me. When I moved from corporate life, having a nice salary, well taken care of, uh, but knowing, and, and again, this is something that people leaving corporate life need to understand. If you've got a big salary, less I'll, I'll keep round numbers. If you if you've got a hundred thousand pound salary, you don't need to create a hundred thousand pounds income outside. The tax efficiency and structuring, and how you use family members and shareholding and everything, can have a massive impact there. And I wanted to challenge every layer of tradition there and do something different for for the family. I, I knew. Uh, tax structuring starting with the end in mind was was super critical so you know something right in the crosshairs for me was my pension and at the age of 44 when I when I left uh, left my job for the last time uh, I had no idea about SIPs or SAS uh, I had a pension and my pension strategy took me about 10 minutes each year enough to open the envelope as you said you know hopefully that'll be better next year that that was pretty much it so very quickly I had to distill that down what am I looking to achieve and uh, there was no books available there's no websites no googling really at that time so I had to probe and push um, sitting down with our accountant um, I I always have a quarterly review with our accountants. When we pay corporation tax and sign off the, the balance sheet and the P&L and the accounts at the end of the year, it's no surprise because we've walked it in every quarter towards the end of the year. It gives us a chance to look at you know, how we can best manage our, our tax affairs. Um, so they were prime opportunities. And um, I, I I swear our accountant has to go and lay down with a cold flannel on his head after he's had a couple of hours with Nigel and I each quarter. Um, maybe extensive counselling as well. <laughs> it's, that, it's that probing, real probing and challenging. And no, I'm not happy with that, 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 that answer. Try again, try harder. Well, let's bring a tax advisor in, push. Um, and we, we came across some of the nuggets of SAS. Um, and we worked incredibly hard, but we don't suffer from procrastination. You know, due diligence is right at the epicenter for uh, for my business partner, Nigel Green, um, my longest serving joint venture. Um, we met in 1997, uh, became directors in 1998 together and, um, you know, have multiple business interests together and 
and we, he's a fellow trustee as well, uh, him and his wife and myself and my wife in our, in our SAS. So, you know, there's a testament to joint ventures, and I've seen joint ventures in my troubleshooting exploits, you know, why they fall over, why there can be challenges, and um, I'm not one for going into something with linking pinkies and walking into the sunset because I understand the the nitty-gritty of, you know, the fallout when things aren't structured right. So I knew my SaaS had to be structured right, so we created the SaaS. And for those that don't know, uh, a small self-administered uh, scheme, um, it's a type of pension. Um, we uh, You can have up to 11 trustees there, and it gives you a huge amount of flexibility in taking control. It's for it's for directors, for business owners, um, of taking control and latitude of your investment decisions. Now, I'm I'm not an advisor. I'm not professionally qualified in pensions. Quite frankly, don't want to be. Um, but what I have got the good sense and purpose to do is go out and find great people who surround me in all quarters, all areas. And I, I put them together and challenge them. You know, if that's our, if we're looking at capital allowances and tax positions on a commercial property, you know, I'll be getting a capital allowances surveyor, I'll be getting an accountant, I'll be getting a, a, a solicitor, they'll be on a Zoom or in a meeting, and I'll challenge them all and I won't let them out of the room until we've got a consensus on the right structure. And that doesn't mean, and, and we will never go and find a commercial property for our SaaS ever we'll find great deals and then we'll look at how best do we structure that deal mm-hmm. and the reason why i mentioned capital allowances without going into detail is a, a, a SaaS is a is a trust it's a tax efficient wrapper um so you're not going to be able to get capital allowances if you hold a commercial property in a SaaS. So I'm going a bit deep and forensic, and that could be a reason why we might choose to house the commercial property and acquire it in a in another structure, a limited company. So I use that as quite a complex illustration of it's all about the structuring. That start with the end in mind, thinking outside of the box. And those that um those that walk around looking navel gazing, looking at their feet. That's akin to a property developer or an investor just looking at one deal. Mm-hmm. You've got to open your peripheral vision. Look at the context. It's very rarely about one deal. It's about where that deal sits in concert with all the other assets at your disposal. Um, and that's where I work with most of my mentees or have been a non-exec director um, for 15-odd years as well is seeing the different perspectives and seeing that longer-range horizon, what one's trying to achieve, uh, and how best to do that in the most risk-assured assured manner. I love that. And you mentioned there about the importance of surrounding yourself with specialists in all aspects of life. And and you also mentioned there that you now mentor and coach um, you know, countless other people now to to build their own wealth and you know long term wealth in a, a very sort of safe and sustainable manner. But do you have any coaches or mentors yourself, Mark, or have you had historically, or do do, do you just work on more of a consultancy basis? If you need a bit of information in a certain area, you you know you will extract that from said person. Um, yes, in simple answers, yes, constantly in in many ways, shapes, or forms. Some of them never knew they were my my mentors. Um, I've had the privilege of standing on the shoulders of giants for for three decades now in various businesses. You know, in in uh, the US, in uh, across Europe, Middle East, and Africa, and, and Asia Pacific. Um, seen some real trailblazers, people who challenge tradition. Um, my my first employer, uh, nineteen ninety two, straight out of university. Um, was uh, a gentleman you'll you'll now know, uh, David McCourt. Oh wow! I'm trying to get David on the podcast actually. So David McCourt was my uh, first employer. Um, oh, the organisation wow. I joined was McCourt Kiwit International. So I saw at first hand how somebody could open up the UK telecoms market. Um, and you know, he was working with uh, a very large US organization, ex chairman of BT. So, 
just seeing phenomenal seismic shifts, um, it can only lower, uh, it can only raise uh, and avert any lowering of your attention. You're, you're, you're looking to their horizons. You're really shaping big visions, big pictures. Um, but of course, much of that is concentrated in the corporate envelope. Um, and it's another thing entirely transforming that into making sure it affects your your personal economy. Wow. And now that you're a mentor and a coach yourself, I mean, was that ever part of the plan? Because you're not really short of things to do. Yeah, I was, uh, we we're just chatting before we hit record and you've got so many developments on the go. You're arranging events. You're uh, involved in so many different businesses and different sectors as well, not just property. You're, you know, you're doing all your stuff with SaaS. How does the mentoring tie into it? Is that more just a passion project? Um, no, no, it's a, a business. We established Echo Academy a number of years ago. But the reality is I've I've been mentoring since 1998. That was mm. a core part of, if you think of my, my leadership role, I've led teams of 50 to 5,000 people pretty consistently. And they've all been in different countries at any, any particular time, uh, particularly um, worked with ex-armed forces personnel because we wanted people with a high degree of intelligence, but a lot of... Um, a lot of um, boots on the ground, early stages. I mean, imagine a brief of going to Tokyo and setting up a data center and a fiber optic network in downtown Tokyo, and you've got 18 months to deliver in you know the late 90s. I mean, that would be a typical brief. So you want people who can think on their feet, who are confident, um, and Royal Engineers were just absolutely fantastic there. So leading people was fantastic. I've mentored people who were far more accomplished than than I was in their particular field. So I've mentored hundreds and hundreds of people over the years, and and I loved it. It kept me sharp, kept them sharp, um, that accountability. And I've I've always rejected that what I would call that civil service environment where, well, if if I employ them, they might be better than me, and they might en end up taking my my job. Well, for me, that was just absolute heaven. You know, if somebody else, if I can train somebody else, identify them, and they can step into my shoes, I can go off and do that next thing. Yeah. Um, and that was that becomes a very liberating, boundaryless environment. And hence, I said earlier on, I've only had two employers in my corporate career, but I must have had fifty, sixty, seventy roles. Because when everybody else is stepping back on, you know, that's a bit awkward. And that, that could be being a, I've been an independent investigator in uh, fatalities in sister companies. Uh, I've seen bank, uh, bank breaches of long stop, um, parachuted in as chairman of a power station that had breached a 30 million pound uh, bank facility. Um, I had to fly. I got the, uh, the the call. I'd regularly get the call from the chairman, Mark, could you just? And this was, uh, Mark, could you just go to Heathrow, collect your tickets, and uh, before the day's out, I want you to head into Australia. Um, we had a, um, a country manager there um, who, who left, and uh, we needed to take control. So when you're landing kind of boots on the ground, when you land in those type of environments, what you're faced with is people looking at you for leadership, um, but also people ducking for cover, people looking to throw rocks at you, people blame game, people stunned into silence, all these scenarios um, when you think of the adversity there. So it takes, it takes a lot of humility and a lot of listening, you know, lead with two ears and not one mouth to really understand and, and draw out the real the real position um, and it's only when you've got that full sit rep that, that situation report that you can really dissect it and put into place uh, an action and the only way you're going to build any of that is with trust building trust um, so look it's all about it's all about people and that's why I've always loved working closely with people whether that be in a leadership role a recruitment role a mentorship role in our mastermind groups, whatever that is, um, and in all walks of life, whether it be somebody looking to leave 
leave the day job with somebody looking to do larger developments. Um, I invest in businesses as well. So that non-executive directorship experience uh, comes in handy because I've seen all the different stages of startup through to maturity, reinvention, uh, growth, exit, you know, whether that be a management buyout, management buy-in, trade sale, uh, merger, acquisition, whatever. Um, so all these leave um, leave, uh, leave leave traits. They leave they leave clues. They leave. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I think probably the thing that it's left with me is a is a calmness under pressure. Mm-hmm. There is there is very little that rattles me. Um, I've I've seen a lot in my life. Um, when I one thing I, di- I didn't say back in eighty nine, you know, I was literally in my first year of my degree course, and I went to a football match, and that turned out to be Hillsborough. Oh God! And uh, when you when you see children in particular take their last breath, it it only can leave see something on your soul. Um, it changes you, it changes your outlook, and I could have I could have spiraled into significant despair i don't think anybody knew what ptsd was back then i don't know whether i had it or not but i know it felt a pretty shit place to be um and i decided to turn that into you know those those children they couldn't lead a happy life of success and you know they they sadly taken their last breath but what i could do is live my life leaving nothing on the table just going for it hell for leather and i think that's the the point you know why do a static line jump when you can be, become a free fall skydiver why go snorkeling when he actually can become an advanced paddy diver um ultra marathon running I, I could have tried to do a half marathon but I, I tried to run 100 miles in in a day always pushing those boundaries and it's led to um it's led to an insatiable desire to find out how deep my reserve tank is. And that's one of those real inner drivers for me. I I don't want to lead a life that's been useless. Um, and I actually find that kind of morally repugnant to do that. It doesn't work for me. And I, I think it does stem back from... The, those traumatic days on that Hillsborough Terrace all those years ago. I can just imagine the imprint that that must have, have left with you, but to have demonstrated the mental resilience that you did, you know, we, we people talk a lot about turning the pain into power, but you've um, you've used that as, as motivation to really extract and maximise the most out of life. But how do you know as somebody who feels so compelled to see how far you can take things and be the best version of yourself. On the flip side of that, how do you know when enough is enough? I think that's a, a great a great question. And uh, one of the greatest strengths in business and life, I believe, is humility. And you asked me earlier on where do I take my, my mentoring from, you know, the reality is from all over. You know, I learned there is no interaction where I don't take something from, and hopefully I leave something more in in return. You know, that could be from my wife in certain scenarios. Definitely with Nigel, my business partner, who's one of the most incredibly accomplished uh, businessmen I've ever had the privilege to work with. Um, when I worked um, in in the US, particularly in in Omaha had the opportunity to, to have dinner with with Warren Buffett. Um, oh, wow. Just amazing. Walter Scott Jr., who sadly just, just passed away. He was uh, chief executive of, of uh, Peter Kiewit and Sons in Omaha. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway have their offices on the 12th floor of Kiewit Plaza. So there's a big relationship there. But some incredible guys who, you know, have all achieved that billionaire status. Um, but actually... They're, they're just numbers. They were genuine and still are genuine, down-to-earth people who had a an extremely strong moral compass bearing. 
And um, one thing that they've they've all achieved before CSV, before creating shared value, was really a known phrase. I was I was brought up almost institutionalized in that don't make profit at the expense of somebody else. Make it whilst you know creating value for others, and that's that creating shared value ethos, which has turned into. ESG and environmental social governance and things um, since then. We've, I've mentioned we we invest in many businesses, um, and we ha- we we have uh, probably synonymous with with large developments, new build and commercial to residential. And we had a, a moral dilemma a, a few years ago, which I, th- I think will will illustrate this. Um, it was a development in Crawley. It was. About twenty-four and a half thousand square feet. Uh, it was a forty-four, or we turned this into a, uh, a forty-four apartment permitted development, commercial to residential conversion. And uh, there wasn't PD on airspace back then, so we went back into planning for a new uh, new floor on and, and an additional nine apartments. So this was fantastic um, development. The start of that process, we took out over 2,000 hypodermic needles out of that building and 4,000 items of drugs paraphernalia. And this is an environment where the next-door neighbours are um, gardens, chimney pots. You know, it's uh, it's housing. We've got kids out at play. Um, so there's quite a lot of antisocial behaviour. Um, and again, coming back to challenging tradition, as a developer, we were not happy that we were celebrating the transformation of this rundown building into beautiful apartments because morally, what had we done? We'd, we'd kick the can down the road. We'd sent the drugs problem down the road. We hadn't attempted to address the deep societal impact and challenges. So we, we decided we had to do something about this. Now I don't have the skills to address the habitual drug taking in, in Crawley. I'm sorry, I, I haven't got those those skills. Um, but what we decided to do was a, akin to, I suppose, carbon offsetting. You know, you still might get on a jet, but can you plant a few trees? Or, you know, that that's, that's sort of vernacular. Um, so what we decided to do was um, team up with, Nigel and I teamed up with Richard and David at Cornerstone Place. And Cornerstone Place is there to address the needs of street homelessness and help alleviate. And over the last two years, we've created a, a secured pipeline, which is now entering construction. And, and in fact, some of them are, are, are completing of six developments, which are creating 2 million homeless bed nights. Wow. And our target is to achieve in excess of 10 million homeless bed nights over the next decade. And in doing that, will save the taxpayer in excess of 49 million a year which is enough to provide a small county of resources for all the blue light services so it just puts that into context that there is an offset activity there which can deeply penetrate into some of the most fundamental challenging issues and we're recording this podcast you know in the middle of winter and it was absolutely freezing this morning and you think somebody is huddled in a doorway there, somebody in a, you know, a poor, um, you know, poor condition in in life through whatever scenario, and um, so yeah, we're 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 pretty humble, and I would rather focus my energies not in creating flash cars and false scenarios. I'd actually rather make an indentured impact in society, and uh, and and become a. Uh, a, a business for difference. Did you always have that social consciousness? Because when we listen to people like Simon Sinek, you know, it's it's all around what is your why. I feel that sometimes there can be a pressure for people like myself that are relatively new to business. You know, pre- pretty much still a startup after you know just less than four years. Whenever you sort of do podcasts and things, the same question comes up. You know, what is your why is it wrong for people at those early stages just to be focusing on sort of building their own wealth and, and, and creating that financial certainty in the first instance? Do you think there can be a danger of less experienced developers 
perhaps trying to bite off more than they can chew? Um, in, in, interesting. I, I could approach it from a, a few different ways. Um, I think there's a danger that things can be manufactured. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, I, I think um, obviously some people have decades of experience and others are just starting out in life. So to actually have a core driver that just drives your every fiber in your body, I think is a phenomenal thing to to have. But I also recognize for some that just comes easy. Um, did I wake up one day? Did I come out the womb uh, having my my why, that creating shared value? You know, look, it's evolved over many of school of hard knocks really in in my life some of which i've been quite candid on on this podcast um so i i think it's a real core real core for everybody to look deeply and understand what do they want and it it could be something as simple i, I mentioned about you know going north for cash flow actually that took me away from my family am i prepared to do that for a few months to then have the rest of my life with my family while i've got assets well, yeah, that becomes a bit of a trade-off. Um, but understanding that, you know, family first for, for me was was hugely important. So, yeah, I, I think having a why is very important. How people get to the why, uh, I, I think I can see some quite dubious practices out there, um, some pariahs feeding off, off that. Um, I think with a, a little bit of nurturing, curating asking and probing the the right questions um bit of drive i think people can come to some enormously powerful um very heartfelt reasons and let's face it when you're um when you're in corporate life you you know you you're kind of smothered in cling film really the 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 organization is molding you to achieve their outcomes and it does take a while as you extract yourself out of that environment you know, you remove the cling film and wrap yourself in Gore-Tex, you know, something that breathes a bit and allows you to actually find your soul and recognize what you're about. And that transition doesn't happen like that, in in my experience. It it can take quite a long time for for people to become comfortable and, and establish themselves in their new environment, in their newfound freedom, which can be incredibly daunting. It can be very lonely. Um, people lo- can lose the um, the metronomic timescales in in their in their day. You know, not everybody's a great time manager. There's so many challenges there. So I think it needs to be quite a quite a bit of time uh, allowed to, to help form views. You know, and and not 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 be manufactured. But of course, the big why, whatever that looks like. Yeah, these things can evolve in life as well. And and indeed, some would argue, I would argue, should. No, I love that. That's a, It's a really good answer. And actually, I think it's also highlighted the importance of, of mentorship and, and coaching and working with people to really help 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 you do that deep work, which you can then start using the, you know, your own example, start incorporating that into your personal world, your personal and your professional world um, for, for sort of joint good and I do think there's a misconception that we all need to wait until we're multimillionaires before we can start making a positive impact in society. And it's definitely not been been my own experience. And, you know, on a smaller scale, I think sometimes when you, you've got to take the action, haven't you? You've got to keep putting one foot in front of the other and surrounding yourself with the right people that you you alluded to earlier. And when I initially started on LinkedIn in particular um, with the social media presence, which is is now sort of taken on a life of its own, it was for one purpose only, and that was to raise private investment, you know, to raise investor finances. The thing I always kind of bang on about, people need to know who you are in order to do business with you. But actually, the uh, <laughs> where it's taken off, it's in a completely different direction. And that's, that, that's almost secondary now. I found that the more, and this, this word is definitely overused, but the more authentic I was when I was putting myself out there, the more I was sharing my own vulnerabilities about 
you know, the highs, the lows, the near bankruptcies, the job seekers allowance, the, the mental health, the postnatal depression, the trying to be a present mum while scaling, um, scaling my business and um, having to do what you do in the early days when you're traveling here, there and everywhere to get your names out there and speaking on stages and saying yes to opportunities that you, you know, you have the, the freedom to turn down the more established you get. And I, I found the more the more real I was, um, the more that message really resonated with people and the more of an impact it had. And, and the success to me then w was less about how much money we were raising and more about the, the feedback I was getting, empowering other people and actually having people messaging me saying a post had stopped them from killing themselves. Yeah, I've, had, I've had that on multiple occasions. And um, yeah, like to, to me, that is genuinely the, the definition of success. And one of our company values is, is people over profit. And you mentioned that there's priors or priors in every um, in every industry, but I, I definitely think we probably have a disproportionate amount of them in property, if I'm, if I'm being perfectly honest. And it, it does seem to be trendy to, to say, oh, I want to, I want to, um, impact a billion lives and and really when you look a little bit when you sort of peel back to to what that individual is actually doing i think that they just mean sell x amount of courses which uh, uh, you know we're all here to make money I, I don't begrudge anyone doing that but often the actions and the the message aren't aligned so i, I think when you speak to someone like yourself who's who's really like walking the walk and, and leading by the front. I mean, those that that example, the, the impact that that's, that's having tenfold, you know, the money it's saving the taxpayer as well. And, you know, it, it's, um, I think it's really special, Mark. I just want to commend you for that. I think that, that's oh, what it's all about. It, it is. Well, well, thank you for that. Uh, I think it's that, it's that circular economy. Um, it's knowing what, galvanizes you into action drives you creates that passion that enables you to i mean we have a philosophy of no leakage don't want anything to leak out that personal economy um so it's highly tax efficient because what i do trust is i trust our ability to make appropriate investments back out of the organization into businesses for good and that is is a wonderful place to be i mean you mentioned so many so many things there that are, are the, the challenges you know we've we've all been through some choppy water and we have to wade through those it it, it can be that vision of the swan gliding across the water but when you are that swan you, the only thing you're conscious of is is your feet going you know somebody said to me um Mark, you know, public speaking, you've done a bit of that over the years. And, yeah, I have as part of leadership, you know, standing at the front and delivering the good, the bad, the the indifferent. But when you're, when you're speaking, it's very rare somebody wants you to stumble and fail. Very rare. And that was a piece of advice I was given. I was best man when I was 18 at my uncle's uh, wedding. Uh, and somebody said, Mark, nobody in that audience wants you to slip up and fail. And it was the one of the single best pieces of advice I was ever given. But have you noticed when you are speaking, it's very easy to be aware of every stem, stammer, every stumble, but nobody else hears that, sees that, because that's just being natural. So be here you are. Just go out there, embrace some of the things that have gone right, gone wrong. Just be very open about some of those, uh, some of those challenges and learning. There isn't that one single moment for, for most of us. It's, um, it's, as I say, it's that school of hard knocks that gradually accumulates. Um, I have a, have a saying, um, start with version one to get to version 10. Just make a start. Uh, as I say, we don't procrastinate. We just get on and do stuff. We do our due diligence incredibly thoroughly, incredibly quickly, you know, a development that we do would typically have about 2,000 years of experience on it. Now, I can't deliver that. Um, but bring the right team together and you can just concentrate and focus. And that's how I do so many different diverse investments and, and many different business interests. Um, I guess I've got the business acumen to set up teams, deployment, um, uh, my background has always been identifying and nurturing great talent. That's what I just love love doing. There is nothing more uh, 
wonderful to see somebody achieve something out with of what they ever expected to achieve. Um, and that's a, a, a fantastic transformation to watch anybody go through. So so what do you, two, two questions in one here, really. I've got a tendency to do that in case you, you've not noticed. Um, but what, what do you look for uh, for an up-and-comer firstly? And which would you say are the trainable skills compared to the, or, or are all skills, I don't want to put words in your mouth, are all skills trainable? You know, are there certain attributes that you really look for that are a must? Yeah. Um, so... There, there are a number there. I'm, I'm going to take honesty, integrity, authenticity as, as, as given. Okay, they're absolutely. Um, I want people who are humble. I don't want the egomaniacs. I don't want the ranting and raving lunatics. I want people who are humble, who are focused, who understand that. It's going to take hard work. They're not looking at the shortcuts. They're passionate. They're committed. Um, and they're good communicators. Um, they recognize that um, nobody, you know, achieved anything on their own. As a rule, generally, it's involved others, family members, support, the supportive environment that's enabled. All these elements there keeps people grounded. Um, uh, humor. Mm -hmm. um because again that we all go through the choppy water and it's quite often that you know i learned that with the military humor with my time in the the ta in the mid 90s keeping everybody grounded and it, it's the the dark humor that gets you through the the tough times and mm -hmm. you know there, there have been some tough times but um the the clock never stops mm -hmm. you know even when you you're, you're fretting you're fearful you know, wait it out. You know, you can drive through that and uh, the end of that scenario will come and you'll emerge out into another scenario. Hence that start with version one to get to version 10. Evolve, make a start. Um, every single one of our business decisions, investments, developments, whatever, um, have made a start and version two has always been better than version one. Version eight has always been better than version seven. You know, we advance and move forward. Um, together so that collaboration teamwork um there you go i've pretty much written, written a, a role profile with all of those scenarios but there's a whole myriad of things um but the biggest area of due diligence in whatever decision you take uh, and and that might mean selecting a joint venture partner um comes down to gut feel mm -hmm. the some of the 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 biggest um mistakes i've i've made in in corporate life um i've ignored my gut feel and a gut feel isn't the answer a gut feel is a telltale it's a telltale sign to go kick a bit harder go and probe go and find out and if you ignore that you ignore that at your peril and uh more often than not that's uh yeah, as an issue will have arisen and you've you've failed to identify and correct it at the early stage and and it'll just snowball wow you've just been uh, providing so much wisdom throughout this i feel like i need to listen to it back and take some notes um so mark i could chat to you all day but i appreciate you're very busy what is your mission so my mission is to create shared value amongst everybody that I touch, every interaction I have. Um, my family are are first for me. Um, they're everything. They provide me the the security, the love, the affection, um, and the confidence to be able to create a uh, a huge stage to be able to roll out that creation of shared value. And the more people I work with touch evolve um and become involved with in the future that compounding effect each of them hopefully will will then return that favor not to me but to the rest of society i help 20 people each of those 20 people help 20 people you can just see the contagious compounding effect um, that will go on to create a multi-generational 
and impactful legacy that all of us can be proud of. I love that. And where can people find you? How can they get more information about the mentorship programs, the academy, um, joint venturing, working alongside you? We'll, we'll, we'll stick it all in the show notes, but where can they reach out to you? Yes, our website is Equa Academy, E-Q-U-A Academy.co.uk. Our Facebook group is Property Developers and Investors. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram. If you want to find me, you'll find me on there and we'll put the links in the show notes. So yeah, that's uh, that's, that's where you can find me. But uh, just, just drop me a note. If you want to drop me a personal note, uh, my email address is mark.stokes at equasas.co.uk. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. You've been an absolute superstar, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Ellie. Really appreciate that. Take care. That concludes another episode of The Power of Property. If you've enjoyed today's content, please make sure you leave a review, subscribe to the podcast and share it with anyone you feel would get value from it. It really does make a difference. Until next time, goodbye.